Nikki and I were chasing each other around the living room. Every time she caught me, I'd scream, but I loved every second. I was three. For every step her nine-year-old legs took, my little legs had to take four. It wasn't easy to catch up. Then, for the first time ever, I caught her in my grasp. But I had no idea what to do. So, in the spirit of three-year-old boys everywhere who've run out of better ideas, I punched her, laughing hysterically. My mother had a radar for mischief. She walked into the room right as my swing connected with Nikki's arm. Get up to your damn room! Her yell startled me. I told you, don't you ever put your hands on a woman. My mother has hands that hit so hard you only have to feel them across your face once to know you don't want them striking there again. I darted up the stairs to my room before those hands could reach me. If I hid myself, maybe I wouldn't get punished. I slammed the door shut behind me just as her voice reached the second floor. And don't let me hear you slam that. Boom! I stared at the closed door knowing it would soon be flying open again. I sat there in silence in the middle of the tiny room I shared with my baby sister, Shani. I wasn't even sure why I was in so much trouble. Joy, you can't get on him like that, my father's baritone voice drifted up through the thin floor. He's only three. He won't even understand what he did wrong. You really think he knows what a woman beater is? It wasn't his style to yell. He stood six foot two, and he was thin with a bushy mustache and a neatly trimmed afro. Wes, he needs to learn what is good behavior and what is not, my mom responded. I heard my father's gentle laugh. Cursing at him isn't the most effective way of making the point. My parents' words faded into the background as I stared out the window, which overlooked a street in our busy neighborhood. On the dresser by the window sat a framed picture of Nikki and me. Colorful beads capped her braids, a hairdo she shared with my mother, and large black framed eyeglasses covered half of her face. I sat in her lap with my arm wrapped around her neck, a goofy smile on my face. My full name is Wesley Watende Omari Moore. My first name, Wesley, is my father's. As for my middle names, my father loved the sound and meaning of Watende, a Shona word that means revenge will not be sought. It fit with his gentle, forgiving spirit. My mother thought Watende sounded too big and complicated for a tiny baby. She wanted to call me Omari, which means the highest. I'm not sure what was less complicated or soaring about that name, but they compromised by giving me both. Nikki's real name is Joy, like my mom's, but at a young age, she was nicknamed after Nikki Giovanni, my mom's favorite poet. Mom was inspired by Nikki Giovanni's feminine strength and she wanted to teach my sisters and me about Giovanni's message of tender love and fierce revolution. I spent nearly every waking moment near Nikki, following her around as we teased each other. I couldn't understand what boundary I had broken in our game. This wasn't really a woman I was punching anyway. This was Nikki. She was a comrade. Our bond was so close it was like we were one being. I thought there was no risk of offending her. Years would pass before I understood how that blow connected to my mom's past. My mother, Joy, came to the United States at the age of three. She was born in Low River in the farmlands of Jamaica. Quiet Low River was far away from the tourist attractions along the coast. My mother's grandparents, my great-grandparents, were called Ma Fred and Miss Ross. They lived on land that had belonged to our ancestors for generations. 
but my grandfather dreamed of studying theology in a university in America. When the family finally earned enough money, they moved to New York. Settling into the Bronx took effort for Joy, but she jumped into the melting pot with both feet. She studied the kids at school like an anthropologist, quietly observing their accents and their style. She imitated voices she heard on the radio, tailoring her speech to fit her surroundings. The Jamaican word airy became cool. Constable became policeman. Easy na became chill out. The melodic fluidity of the Jamaican accent gave way to the crisper diction of American English. Joy entered American University in Washington, D.C. in 1968. It was a year marked by change, excitement, and tragedy throughout the world. In America, people were protesting the Vietnam War, War and marching in the civil rights movement in the name of peace and desegregation. The nation was divided. When Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, American cities exploded in riots. The riots were about more than King's murder, though. They were about years of racial segregation and economic inequality that were reaching a breaking point. Being quiet was no longer an option. People took to the streets to express their rage. They were so overcome by feelings of frustration and hurt that they were burning down their own neighborhoods. In many areas, people in white neighborhoods blockaded their streets, trying to keep the damage within the poor black areas. By the time the riots stopped, our nation's inner cities stood eerily quiet. To this day, there are parts of our country that have not fully recovered. Joy was furious that America, the very country that offered her new opportunities, still had laws and traditions that allowed her, as an African-American and a woman, to be treated like a second-class citizen. She found support with her friends and fellow students in a campus group called OASATAU, the Organization of African and African-American Students at the American University. OASATAU encouraged AU's black students to take an active interest in national, international, and campus issues. Being around students with similar ideas raised my mother's awareness and her standards. She didn't want to change to fit into the melting pot. She wanted to be accepted for who she was. The treasurer of OASATAU was a junior named Bill. Two months after he and my mom met, they were engaged. Two years later, they married. Bill looked for work while Joy was a junior in college. They were both still trying to find their feet as adults though, and being responsible for each other overwhelmed them. The love haze wore off sooner than they had expected. The same qualities that had made Bill so attractive as a college boyfriend his free and rebellious spirit, his fierce contempt for, quote, the man, made him completely unreliable as a husband. He had long been an occasional drug user, but now he started using drugs daily. Joy knew that free love and drug experimentation were part of being young in the 1970s, but she didn't like them being constants in her own home. As the years passed, Joy kept hoping that Bill's use of alcohol and drugs would stop. She believed that her fantasy could come true, that she could change and save her man. When Nikki was born, Joy expected that Bill would be motivated to cope with his addictions and step up as a dad. But instead of his, his addictions got worse and the physical and emotional abuse he inflicted on Joy intensified dramatically. One night, Bill came home higher than Joy had ever seen him. Wash the dishes, he shouted. 
He was kicking doors and cabinets shut, slamming glasses down on the table. Shush, she pleaded. You'll wake Nikki. The more she shushed him, shushed him, the more he hollered. He moved in on her so that the two of them stood face to face. He grabbed her shoulders and threw her down. She was sprawled on the floor in her blue American University sweatpants in agony. And before she could sit up, he grabbed her t-shirt and hair and dragged her toward the kitchen. She screamed without fear of waking Nikki anymore. He hit her in the chest and stomach. He kicked and scratched at, she kicked and scratched at his hands. He dragged her more roughly across the floor until her head slammed against the door jam. He released his grip on her hair and once again bellowed, wash the dishes. He stood over her with a contemptuous scowl on his face. That look was the last straw. His abuse and humiliation were ruining the happy life Joy wanted for her daughter. Her will gave her the strength to pull herself up from the floor. On top of the counter was a wooden block that held all the large, sharp knives in the kitchen. She pulled the biggest one out and angled the blade at his throat. Her voice was collected. If you try that again, it will be the last thing you ever do. Bill seemed to suddenly become sober. He backed out of the kitchen slowly, not taking his eyes from his wife's tear-stained face, her determined stare. A month later, Joy and Nikki left Bill for good. My mom vowed to never let another man put his hands on her. The voices downstairs stopped. Someone was heading up to speak to me. From the sound of the steps, it was my father. His walk was slow, heavy, and solid. My mother tended to move up the stairs in a sprint. He knocked lightly on the door and slowly turned the knob. He peeked in, half smiling. I knew that at least for now my beating would wait. Hey, man, man, do you mind if I come in? I'm told that dad had many nicknames for me. Main man is the only one I remember. I nodded slowly without looking up. He had to duck to clear the low door frame. As he sat on the bed, he picked me up and placed me on his lap. My anxiety melted away like butter. I could not have felt safer and more secure. Main man, you just can't hit people, and particularly women. You must defend people, not fight them. Do you understand? I nodded. Is mommy mad at me? No, mommy loves you just like I love you. She just wants you to do the right thing. With tiny resistant steps, I followed my father downstairs to face my mother and Nikki. I tried to copy his walk. When I moved like him, I felt as if I could match his strength. I was his main man. He was my protector. That is one of only two memories I have of my father. The other is of watching him die. Dad was his only parent's son. He was tall without being intimidating and he had a deep voice. When he graduated from Bard College in 1971, he dreamed of being a TV reporter. He wanted to address injustices across the country and the world and to make sure his fellow citizens were in the know. He wanted to make an impact as a voice of truth. After traveling across America as a reporter, he returned to Maryland to host his own public affairs radio show and he needed to hire a new writing assistant. That assistant's name was Joy. Their work relationship quickly turned to love. My father was intensely attracted to the short woman with a broad smile who mixed a steel backbone with Caribbean charm. And in Joy's eyes, Wesley was the opposite of Bill, calm, reassuring, hardworking, and sober. Wesley and Nikki adored each other. 
They might not have shared DNA, but their bond was unbreakable. My parents married in a small ceremony in Washington, D.C. I entered the world two years later. We became a family of five when Shawnee was born in 1980. On April 15, 1982, my father ended his radio news broadcast on WMAL with his signature sign-off. This is Wes Moore. Thanks again, and we'll talk next time. But keeping the cheer in his voice was a struggle. For the past 12 hours, he'd been feeling ill. Breathing was a chore. He came home after midnight when my sisters and I were already asleep. After finishing dinner, his favorite meal of smothered lamb chops, he couldn't sleep. He took an aspirin, hoping it would ease his severe sore throat and fever. Once the sun rose, he got out of bed. He threw on a tattered blue flannel shirt and a pair of worn blue jeans. He got in his red Volkswagen and drove himself to the hospital. My mother took Nikki to school and Shani and me to the babysitters. Then she rushed rushed to the emergency room. She was shocked by what she saw. Her husband was slouched over in the hospital bed. His eyelids were drooping and his head was flopping from side to side. The doctors didn't seem shocked at all. They said they couldn't find anything wrong. He just had a bad sore throat and needed to rest. They released him, not suspecting that they would be seeing him again soon. Near six o'clock that evening, my mother was in the kitchen holding Shawnee as she and Nikki cooked potato pancakes for dinner. I sat at the dining room table coloring in my clown coloring book. I was months away from my fourth birthday. I heard my father coming down the stairs. His steps were strangely slow, not that firm tread I was used to. I got up to greet him at the foot of the stairs so he'd pick me up. Then there was a crash and I saw his body sprawled across the floor at the foot of the stairs. He was trembling uncontrollably. Then another crash, this one from the kitchen. I didn't want to take my attention away from my dad, but I was so surprised I whirled around. After hearing my father's fall, my mother had dropped the sizzling cast iron skillet on the floor. I turned breathlessly back to my father and saw him gasping for air, clutching his throat. Hardly any sound came from his mouth. His normally strong features sagged in exhaustion, as if he were fighting against something powerful and cruel. Mommy pushed past me. Nikki, call 911. Nikki rushed to the phone. I could hear her repeating again and again, I don't know what county we're in. Shawnee sobbed in the background, adding to the crazed symphony. My mother bent over my father, trying to give him CPR. Shawnee, still crying, was draped over her shoulder, and I just stood there staring, not knowing what to do. Wes, Nikki, go outside. Signal to the ambulance crew the second you see them so they know where to go. Nikki took my hand and led me out to wait. The dusk was turning to darkness as the police and ambulance crews arrived minutes later. The street was quickly becoming packed with people who were watching anxiously, but I felt deeply alone. My mind was racing, but at the same time, it felt empty. The EMTs placed my father onto a gurney and raced back out. The ambulance doors slammed shut. Mom loaded us into the car and followed the ambulance to the hospital. The air was full of noises, Shawnee crying and Nikki making goo-goo noises to try to calm her down and the loud siren of the ambulance in front of us. But it felt as silent as the tomb. No talking, no questions. 
The hospital was only five minutes from where we lived, but the ride seemed long. We were sent to the waiting area. Shawnee had quieted down and was playing with her shoestrings while Nikki clutched me on her lap. An ER doctor walked toward us. Mrs. Moore, I'd like to speak to you in private if I may. He's dead, isn't he? My mother demanded. I am sorry, but by the time he got here, he was gone, the doctor said. We tried, we tried hard, I'm so sorry. Then my mother passed out. Dad was dead five hours after having been released from the hospital with the simple instruction to, quote, get some sleep. The same hospital was now preparing to send his body to the morgue. My father had entered seeking help, but his face was unshaven, his clothing disheveled, his name unfamiliar, his address not in a wealthy area. The hospital staff looked at him suspiciously, questioned whether his illness was even real, and basically told him to deal with it himself. Now my mother had to plan his funeral. We found out that he died from acute epiglottitis, a rare but treatable infection that causes the epiglottitis to swell and cover the air passages to the lungs. Numbing my father's throat was the worst thing the doctors could have done. My father could no longer feel it closing. His body suffocated itself. Of the three of us kids, our father's death struck Nikki the hardest. She had known him the longest, and she was the only one old enough to understand what was going on. And there was another reason. Bill, her biological father, changed when my father died. While Dad was alive, Bill supported Nikki financially and took the time to see her and talk to her. After Dad died, the calls, the letters, and the checks stopped coming. Bill had been competing with my father for Nikki's love. With Dad out of the picture, the threat was gone and Bill no longer made an effort. It was as if my sister lost two fathers that day. For days after my father's death, the phone rang nonstop. People crowded into our home. His death had created a major stir in the journalistic community. He was young, talented, and admired. His colleagues turned up to pay their respects. I saw the pain on their faces without understanding it. If my father had passed on, like so many people told me, where had he gone? I wanted him to be mine for keeps. The funeral took place at the 14th Street Baptist Church, the church where my parents had been married six years earlier. My uncle escorted us to the mahogany casket in front of the altar to see my father's body one last time. Dad looked serene now, not like the last time I had stood next to him when he'd lain at the bottom of the stairs. My uncle gently pulled my hand to signal it was time to go, but I resisted moving away. On tiptoes, I peeked into the casket and asked, Daddy, are you gonna come home with us?